Let's turn to James chapter 4, if you have your Bible, starting in verse 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we don't have our Bibles with us this morning. They're over at the rec center, so you might have to share with somebody that's next to you. James chapter 4, verse 13 through verse 17. Read along with me as I, as I read it out loud. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you open our eyes this morning to the truth that is in this text. Uh, where we are weak, God, make us strong. Where we are, are strong, uh, show us our weakness so that you may be made strong within us. God, where uh, we need to be convicted in the darkest places of our hearts this morning, I, I ask that you expose those places, convict us, bring this text to life through your spirit moving in this room and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So today is January 1st. Did you guys know that? It's like one of those dates that you don't have to ask anybody, what's the date? You know, you are, I'm not going to name call, but if you have to ask the date today, that's crazy. Uh, January 1st, 2012, welcome to the new year. This is like the time of year that we reflect on the past, we reflect on the negative things uh, of, of the past year things that didn't go well, maybe some disappointments that are in your life, some challenges that are in your life. Um, we reflect on the good, right? We celebrate the, good, the many good things that have happened, uh, new relationships, new jobs. Um, we, we give thanks to God. I hope you give thanks to God as you celebrate the good. And, uh, and as we reflect, it often leads us toward thinking of the new year, 2012. The, the year, year that we're entering into. And often, as we reflect on the past, and as we think about the new year, we don't think about these sort of like subtle nuances of the Holy Spirit moving in our lives. We don't think often about the, the deeper things in life. Um, we often uh, are, are met with these sort of big, glaring problems that we are coming out of the year with and entering into the new year with, such as I put on 20 pounds or I buried my six pack in a cooler, right? Or I spent way too many, too much money on cigarettes and I've got to stop smoking now. Or, or, um, uh, what's another one? What's somebody's new year's resolution? Come on. Write more letters. Write more letters. I haven't communicated with enough people. Yeah. So I'm going to write more letters this year, um, I've, I've swiped my credit card one too many times, and I've, I'm in loads of debt, or I started another GED class, or um, dropped or dropped dropped a course, and now I don't know if I'm going to graduate, or 
sort of these big glaring things. And so then we say, ah, the new year, 2012, it's, this is the year, right? This is the year that we're going to make a shift. This is the year that we're going to change the way that we are. We're going to do things different. We're going to lose weight this year, right? <laughs> I am going to go on a diet this morning. We're going to lose weight. I'm going to take Dave Ramsey's financial peace class, and I'm going to get out of debt once and for all, right? Um, I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to write more letters. I'm going to... What are, what are some New Year's resolutions that you guys have? Any others? Is Hannah the only one that makes New Year's resolutions in this room? A cleaner house. A cleaner house. There you go. I'm going to have a cleaner house. My house is too dirty. And... Uh, Gonna have a cleaner house. Dustin messed it up when he lived there, and so we've got to clean now. <laughs> Things have got to change. So we make these like big. This is the year. I'm gonna I'm gonna resolve to 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 do this. Um, and I want to read Jonathan Edwards when he was 19. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor, theologian, one of the greatest thinkers, maybe the greatest thinker that America has has ever seen. Um, when he was 19 years old, he wrote down 70 resolutions. And uh, I don't want to make us feel bad for our resolutions. I just want to read you his, though. And it makes me feel bad for my resolutions. Here, here, th- these were a couple of Edward's re- resolutions. And I have these printed off. If you'd like one afterwards, I can give you all 70 of them. Number one, Resolved. That I will do whatever, whatsoever I think to be the most to, to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure, in the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. Resolved, this is number four, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to be the glory of God, nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. Number 10, resolved if I feel pain, to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Number 13, resolved to be endeavoring to find out fit objects of charity and liberality. Number 16, resolved never to speak evil of anyone, so that it shall tend to his dishonor more or less upon no account except for some real good. Number 28, resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently, as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. 19 years old, these were his 70 resolutions. Um, Nothing wrong with making resolutions. Nothing wrong with saying, this year uh, I'm going to lose weight. This year I'm going to get out of debt. This year I resolve to do everything for the glory of God. Nothing wrong with resolutions. Um, James, in, in this passage this morning, is calling us, however, to consider how we make decisions and why we make those decisions. He's not referring directly to New Year's resolutions or necessarily resolutions in general. I think they're a good example, though, to get our minds thinking along these lines of the decisions that we do make in life. 
what are those decisions? What have they been in your past? What are they going to be in 2012? How are you making those decisions? And why are you making those decisions? So James confronts us with this. Verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and make and trade and make a profit. In, in the Eastern culture, even today, in a culture where there's trading and bartering, this is not uncommon to say, I, I've got a bunch of this stuff that I, that I trade, and I'm going to go into such and such a town, and I'm going to live there for a time, maybe a year, and I'm going to trade my stuff, uh, a town that needs my stuff, and I need their stuff, I'm going to trade it, and I'm going to make a nice profit, and I'm going to go back home after a year with a profit. That's how he begins. He begins by painting this picture of this character for us. And let me say this. This is not a problem. It's not a, it's not a sin. It's not an evil thing to say, I'm going to go to a town and I'm going to trade for a year. In our context today, that might be uh, more along the lines of, um, I'm going to take an internship in New York City and I'm going to do that for a year and then I'm going to work there for two years and then I'm going to come back home. Uh, and take a job here. Or maybe some of you are here in sort of a temporary kind of plans. That's why you're in Baltimore, to come and to trade for a year, make a profit, and go home, etc., etc., as an example. Nothing wrong with that. James, and I think it's important to point out that the problem here that James is, is about to confront isn't just simply decision-making in general or planning in general. Nothing wrong with making plans. Nothing wrong with having an idea of where you're going, as a matter of fact, you should have an idea of where you're going in life. But the problem is this. Specifically, James is calling Christians to live a life that is completely different from the world. We talked about this two weeks ago as we got into James chapter 4. So we began, began to look at um, this idea of, of holiness and not being linked up with the world. And so James calls us then to, to remove ourselves from what he calls worldliness. Um, this begins with, uh, with the very core of our existence, the, the way that we think. He talks about the way that we use words, how we use the words. They should be different in the way that we speak to each other. It should be different than the world speaks to each other. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about simply living a life that is holy, that is set apart. And, and what, he, what James even said was, was that we have a jealous God to the point where if we are living a life that is not set apart, if we're not living a life that looks any different from the world around us, our jealous God, the creator God of this universe who has ransomed you and he owns you and he has saved you and you are his servant, he is angry that his bride is running around cheating on him. And so in the same vein, then, now James is turning to the way we make decisions. And so even decisions, then, should be made in a way, James is saying, that is different from the world. We need to think about the way we make decisions. We need to think about the decisions that we make. And so the problem here, then, is this. With this character that James is, is creating for us, it's not that he's just making a decision, but that he's making a decision in his own wisdom and in his own strength, and in his own power. Verse 14, he says this, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then 
vanishes. Um, the, the problem with this character that James is creating for us is he is making a decision in his own wisdom and in his own strength as if there is no God. He's making his own decision in his power, in his strength, and in his wisdom. And see, here's the thing. In our culture, we love stories like this. We love stories where people um, are, are, are self-made, right? Where people pick themselves up by the bootstraps. They don't need anybody. They don't need any friends. They don't need any, any uh, greater person just pulling them up. And they don't need any God. But they have the power within themselves to pick themselves up and to make themselves into the person we want to be. We love stories like this. That's why we love the story of like Mark Zuckerberg who drops out of college, right? I don't need college. I don't need uh, the, the, this, this high and lofty education because I'm going to create Facebook and make millions of dollars, right? We love these kind of like champion, you know, strong self-made sort of stories or the athlete who grew up on the streets he had nothing grew up on the streets and and uh became a world-class athlete with with nobody behind we love these kind of stories um we we love this cavalier mentality that uh, of of sort of our world which says i can be whatever Fill in the blank. I want to be. I can be whatever I want to be. I can do whatever I choose to do. We hear that and we think nobility. That is noble. That is fabulous. What a great idea to have that determination that I can be whatever I want to be. Or the American dream. If I work hard enough, I can have whatever I want, right? You can have whatever you want. You just have to work hard enough. That's what we're told. Um, or the, uh, the, the wisdom which I saw tattooed on someone's arm, I control my own destiny. Very popular phrase. I control my own destiny. We hear that and we puff our ch chests up a little bit, right? We're like, yes, that's me. I control my own destiny. I decide where I want to go in life. I can choose to be whoever I choose to be. And here's the reality, and I want you to get this because you're my friends and I love you. That is all wrong. That's all wrong. You might find that in... Um, self-help books. You might actually find that from some Christian self-help books or from TV preachers. You might find that in Buddhism. But you're not going to find it in the pages of Scripture. What you'll find in the pages of Scripture are verses like Matthew 10.29, which says it talks about two, how, how two sparrows are sold for a penny, meaning they're worthless. Two sparrows are sold for a penny. Then it says, not one of them falls dead outside the will of God. These meaningless, cheap, half-penny little birds. Not one of them falls dead 
outside the will of God. God has revealed himself to us through the pages of the scriptures over the history of humanity as a sovereign God. Completely in control of everything. When a sparrow falls dead, bam, it was God's will. So what James is saying is simply this. We have no clue what's in store for us. Your life, he says, is like a mist. Have you ever built, who has built something with the foundation of a mist? You can't do it. Smoke can be pretty thick. It can seem pretty solid. But you can't build a house using smoke as your foundation, right? So what is your life? Your life is a mist. Any plans that you make then are completely dependent on you living, right? I mean, we can't say I'm going to do X, X, and X with my life um, without actually living, to accomplish these things. And and our lives are uncertain. Our lives are vapors, which are here for a little while and then dissipates. We we are reminded of this every time uh, someone we know dies. Last month, uh, my cousin and her husband were preparing for Christmas. They uh, were preparing to move from California to Florida. Um, I'm sure there was a job lined up, probably bills uh, in his mind that had to be paid. And he uh, felt uh, sick one morning, went to the hospital and died within hours. Whenever that happens, when, when someone we know passes away, especially someone who's young, someone who dies unexpectedly, we are reminded of this truth, are we not? That our life is a vapor. We are reminded how fragile our lives really are. And how no one is guaranteed 2012. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. As a matter of fact, no one one is guaranteed to get to lunch today. I hope we do. Because I'm already kind of hungry. (laughs) But we aren't guaranteed nothing. Our lives are vapors. And you can't build anything, James is saying, on a vapor. Now, on one hand, this would be exceedingly depressing. As we consider history, as we consider the history of the world, and we think then about our little vapor in the midst of that history, our little blip on the timeline of all of history, And then we consider the fact that in three or four generations from now, we will largely be forgotten on this world. Your name will be some name that your great, 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 great grandkids dig up to stick on a family tree somewhere. And that's only in three or four generations, all right? We are a mist that is quickly fading, and the memory of us 
in this world will be quickly faded. Now, so on one hand, this could be exceedingly depressing. Oh my gosh, why did I get out of bed on New Year's Day to come to church and hear this crap? I need something better than this, right? This could be exceedingly depressing. If this world was all that we had, if this was it, if, if the, the truth that our culture tells us, that we are self-made, that we are our own heroes, that we have the strength and the wisdom to change the world, and we're going to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, and we need no other man, we, need, we do not need a God, we have the strength and power within us to do what? We're a blip. I mean, does an atheist who believes that he is self-made have any more joy than the Christian? Does a secular humanist who believes that, that they can choose to be whoever they want to be and they can pull themselves up by the bootstraps and do whatever they want to do and celebrate that and rejoice in that, do they really have any more joy? Of course not. Because they too know when they consider history that life is like a mist and it's fading. And if this world is all that there is, that would be exceedingly depressing. Unless we believe that there is a God who has an eternity of life stored up for us. And the decisions we make in this vapor, in this life, actually do matter. See, if there is no God, and if we just are self-made, and we are the strength, we are the wisdom of the world, etc., etc., the decisions of this life really don't matter. It doesn't matter who we become. It doesn't matter what you do, what accomplishments you make. They really don't matter because it's all fading. But what if there is a God who has an eternity stored up for us and the decisions we make in this life matter? Two truths then that make this sort of vapor um, of an existence absolutely exciting and exhilarating and meaningful and worth living. Number one, it's the decisions that we make in this life, matter and are very important. The decisions we make in this life matter in the world to come. And they are very important. And number two, God has a will for your <coughs> life. God has a will for your life. See, if, if we simply um, abandon our strength, our wisdom, our power, and replace it with nothing, we are left with absolutely nothing. But James is calling us to not less as a human. He's calling us to, to something that is much greater, something that is much more. Look at verse 15. He says this, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What is evil? It's the boasting in your arrogance. Boasting in your own wisdom. In your own strength. Operating in your own power. Boasting in the fact that you are self-made. Boasting in the fact that you need no one and nothing else. And no divine power and no divine strength. To be so arrogant that we would make life decisions without consulting God. And we boast in that. That's evil. Theologically, you're a Christian. Practically speaking, on the other hand, you are an atheist. You've got your beliefs right in your head. However, practically speaking, especially when it comes to decision-making, you, de- you make decisions like an atheist. You make decisions as if there is no God. As if your will is the best will for your life. As if your strength is the best strength. As if your wisdom is the best wisdom. As if your power is the greatest power. I like what Albert Barnes, the, the theologian, said. He says, all such rejoicing is evil, wicked, and atheistical, as expressing a neglect of and independence on the providence, on providence, arrogating and ascribing too much to themselves, their power and will, as if they had their lives and fortunes in their own hands and at their own dispose, when all depend upon the will of God. So therefore, James urges us, if the Lord wills it, if we live then we will do this thing. Or then we will do that thing. And by the way, this is more than just like a little tagline in the middle of your prayer. It's more than a tagline on your prayer request. God, I I need a job. Uh, Give me a job. If it's your will. You know, I know I'm supposed to say that. If it's your will. Um, I've got a prayer request. need a job. If it's God's will. You know. It's so much more than just like this little lip service. This little tagline of, Oh, by the way, I do want your will. But really, I want mine. But I want your will, right? Um, this, this idea of submitting ourselves to the will of God is a completely foundational, like elementary, just shift in the way that we think. It's a shift in our, in our worldview. It's, our, it's, it's movement from self-dependence to God-dependence. It's movement... From self-confidence to confidence in the Almighty God. (coughs) Um, It is throwing our plans and our lives and our decision-making processes into the mercies of God. It's saying, do what you may. Do what you may. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's where I'm planning on going, Do, but do what you may. I am completely at your disposal. And if, 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 if your will is for my vapor to vanish in 2012, if your will is for me to not make it through 2012, then to God be the glory. May I die bringing praise to your name and reflecting the glory of God. 
if your will is for me to make a million dollars in 2012, then to God be the glory and may I use every penny of that to, to mirror the, the beauty and the magnificence of Jesus Christ. Resigning everything, every, every bit of our intellect, every bit of our planning, every bit of our decision-making process to, to God. Now, on one hand, this is absolutely crippling. Um, it, to, to recognize that our power, our strength, our wisdom is uh, not only limited, but really in the big grand scheme, scope of things, um, it is nothing. I mean, we, once our vapor is vanquished, we have no more power, right? In the grand scope of all eternity, our power is nothing. Our wisdom is nothing. Our strength is nothing. On one hand, this is, this is crippling, and it can appear as weakness to the world around us. It cripples, it, it, it can appear as sort of crippling us as, as human beings. And in and of itself, it is. If we remove ourselves from our own willpower and wisdom and strength and we replace it with nothing then we are pitied miserable people who are doing absolutely nothing with our lives so on one hand it would be completely crippling but that's not what James is getting at see James believes and he's presenting this and, and this we believe that this is the word of God powerfully spoken to us that God has a will for us. And so we are not resigning everything that we are and trading it for nothing, but rather we're, we're resigning it for everything we are and we're trading it for the wisdom of God. And this then becomes radically empowering and radically liberating. Um, it, beginning with this question, who would you want to control your destiny? You? Or the creator God of this universe? I mean, foolishness would say, I want to control my destiny. I think I can do a better job. But when, when we resign ourselves to the decision-making, or we, we resign our decision-making and our planning processes to the critique and to the evaluation and to the wisdom of God, it's, it's dangerous because God might change your plans. God might say, I don't know if that's where we are going in 2012. That's your will, not my will. They might not line up. And so on one hand, it's dangerous. On the other hand, it's, it's always best. Um, as an example, as, as a dad myself, as a father, as a daddy, an Abba, um, a Faja. A father. Um, I have two uh, beautiful, I put on my Facebook, how did I say it? Beautiful, quirky, intelligent girls, something like that. And a boy on the way, thanks be to God. Right? Um, as a, a dad, I haven't adopted this sort of new wave of parenting where you just let your kids make all their own decisions, right? Boo. Boo. 
um, hey, that's legit. Like, people, I mean, it's not legit, but people are doing that. <laughs> I just read an article about some couple in Canada that are like, make it, they, they, they let their kids choose everything, what they eat, what they wear, from like the time they can move. Um, they are making their own decisions. Um, we just don't do that. Uh, and I'll tell you why. It's like a really in-depth um, reason. It's stupid. Right? <laughs> it is absolutely stupid. Um, I, I, I hope I'm not stepping on any toes. Um, but if I am, you're stupid. All right? Let's just leave it at that. Uh, why is that stupid? Because a loving father knows that a four-year-old's mind is extremely limited in their decision-making process, and they will, more often than not, as intelligent as she is, more often than not, make poor decisions. So we have trained our children then to, to, to resign their decision-making process, to submit their planning process to our will. And so they come up to us and they say, hey, um, can we watch 10 movies back-to-back today? And they don't phrase it like that, but that's essentially what they mean. <laughs> and we're, we say, no, you can't. Um, now, this is an extremely loving and trusting thing for a child to do. Because even though they stomp their feet a little bit and they get upset, it is a loving thing for a child to submit themselves to the will of the, the, the father, their parents. And then, even though they get a little upset and they're discouraged, they trust, even if it's subconsciously, they trust that we know what's best for them. Right? Father knows best. We trust, they trust that I know what's best for them. And so as we submit ourselves, our planning processes, to the will of, of God, it is dangerous on one hand, because he might change our plans. And we might not get what we want. But we recognize, and this is a loving and a trusting movement on our part, we recognize that the Father knows what's best for us, and we are going to trust him. Even if it doesn't make any sense. If the world around us is chaos, and we have lost people that are dear to us, and we don't understand why God is doing what he's doing, we, like children, trust that our Father knows what's best. Why? Would we? Why would we allow the, uh, the decision-making process of a four-year-old to reign when there could be the? You could literally take the, the decision-making process, the mind of a loving father, and gift it to that child. In the same way, why would we, as babes, why would we choose to operate in the wisdom? And the strength of humans when we could operate in the wisdom and the strength of God. It just doesn't make any sense why we would choose the former. 
And then here's, here's the thing. As children grow, as my kids grow, and as they learn more of my thinking, my will for them, my, the way that I make decisions, guess what? They, 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 they start to know the way my mind works. And they, they begin to just simply act in accordance to my will. It's no longer a question, should I watch ten movies back to back today? But they have learned now to make decisions with the wisdom of their father. Or mother, I don't want to leave Jess out. They've learned to make decisions in that way, and they begin to adopt our mind. Our mind becomes their mind, essentially. It's, a, it's one of the greatest gifts that parents can give their, their kids. And as we grow in Christ, as we move from milk to meat, as we move from babes in Christ to mature believers, we begin to just simply know what the Father's will is. We know the heart of God. We know the mind of God. As, 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 a, as an example, if you are brand new to the faith, brand new to the faith, and you know of a, about like a serious like missions need, um, and you are gifted unexpectedly thousands of dollars, you may ask God, I don't know, like, is it your will for me to buy this luxurious item with the thousands of dollars? Or should I give it away? And this is a new concept to you. This doesn't make any sense. Because the previous wisdom would have said, it's all about you. Don't worry about anybody else, you know? And so as a babe, we have to, we, we begin to grapple with the scriptures. And we begin to ask trusted Christians that are around us, people that we look up to in the faith. And we, and we learn what God wants for us to do with our life. But as we grow and as we learn more the heart and the mind of God, we know what God wants us to do. It is an immediate, I am in his will, I know his will, and I am doing his will. See, here's the, 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 the first step in um, knowing the will of God is to simply do what you already know. Right? I mean, we don't have to ask God whether or not we should be more generous. It might not need, we might not need to make that our New Year's resolution. It's simply like, you find somebody who's naked and they're hungry, you clothe them and you feed them. We might not need to ask God, should we be more loving? When there are brothers and sisters around us crying, we just simply decide, I'm going to do the will of God that I already know and I'm going to weep with my brothers and sisters and I'm going to love. The first step in, in this big question, how do I know the will of God? It's to simply do what you already know. I mean, everybody here, I would imagine, like, you get an idea of some biblical truths, right? I mean, you know, you've, you've read this enough to where you know something that God wants you to do, so do that. Like, begin doing what you already know. And if you're not doing what you already know God wants you to do, then forget everything else. Don't worry about seeking God's will with the bigger decisions of life, if you're already disobeying him. And I'll tell you why. If you don't care, if you already don't care what God thinks, and it is very clear some things that God has revealed to us in his word, and you're already disobeying, why would you care with the bigger things? 
If God tells you to do something you don't want to do, you're not going to do it. You're already disobeying God, right? So don't come to me. Don't, don't be disobeying what God wants you to do, the things that you already know, and then come to me and give me this lip service. Hey, pray for me. I've got this big decision coming up, and I just want the God. I want God's will. You know, I'm like, I mean, and I might not know where you're where you're disobedient and sinning, but if I did, I would look at you and be like, "Come on, you're already disobeying God. You don't want His will." All right, do you guys got that? Do what you already know. It's pretty simple. Nothing fancy about it. Do what you know. God already wills you to do, and and as you go on, as you desire to learn what his will is for your life study the word study the scriptures is it an accident that god has given us these pages do you know how uh coveted in a godly way these pages are in some parts of this world if you can get your hand on one of these pages you will know it back and forth Study the scriptures. Love the scriptures. Get in the word and actually like read it and study it and, and, and seek his will and seek his mind and seek his heart. Get to know God through listening to his word. And then as Charles Spurgeon says, spend time in the revealed word of God, the scriptures, the vehicle, this is our vehicle. Spend time in, in, the, in the revealed word of God, but Spurgeon also says, spend time in the incarnational word of God. Spend time with Jesus. There is no greater place for a sheep who's looking uh, for direction. There's no greater place to be than to have our arms and our legs wrapped around the shoulders of our shepherd. With our heart resting, or our head resting against his, his chest, listening to his heartbeat. There is no greater place to be than in the presence of Jesus Christ. To withdraw from the craziness, the chaos around us, and to spend time with Christ. In communion with him. The, the problem is, is too often we get, um, we get tied into our dreams. We have these, these dreams that we've come up with. This is the way life should be. This is, the, what, this is what I want. This is what I think this thing should look like. And we are so tied into that dream that it can cloud out the will of God. It can cloud out everything else. John Piper tweeted last week, I follow John Piper on Twitter. He tweeted, There are dreams that should wait for the age to come. The world is fallen, and there are other things to do, he said. There are other things to do. I know you want this. But it's not happening. Evidently, it's not God's will. And it's clouding out all of these other things to do. Maybe better things that God has in store for you. In a phrase, don't waste your life. And I believe that this is James' point. Is he's giving us this character, this person who's 
a, a cavalier and he's, he's making his own decisions and he's, he's pulling himself up by the bootstraps and he's, doing his, his, he's operating his own wisdom, his own strength, and he's forgetting that life is just a vapor. I think James is calling us to consider that vapor and not waste it. To make decisions that are in line with the will and the heart and the mind of God. Decisions that, that are important, that matter, and that affect, and they, they matter uh, to the world that is to come. If it is true, then, that life is a vapor, that, that it, is, it is fading quickly. If it is true that 2012 is a vapor, and it's fading like this, even though it's January 1st, it will be January 1st, 2013, before you know it. Amen? It was January 1st. 2011, like, a year ago. It's amazing. <laughs> Not like yesterday. It, it just goes like this. If it's true that it's a vapor, and if it's true that the decisions we make matter, then don't waste your life. Don't waste 2012. Seek his will, study the word, spend time with Jesus, and don't waste it. The problem that, that distracts us is how often we fail. We make our New Year's resolutions. Some of you, I'm going to lose weight this year. You had a piece of toast this morning and a glass of orange juice. And you're doing well, but you know that tonight you're going to be eating donuts. Right? <laughs> we are failures at our core. It's what the scriptures refer. It's why the scriptures refer to us as sinners. Sin isn't something we do. Sin is something we are. And it, with this cavalier mindset of being self-made and doing it, we will become so distracted at the fact that we fail all the time. We fail. There was a guy named Samuel Johnson. He wrote in his journal back in the 1700s. Um, a, a man who truly like wanted to conquer laziness. Spiritual laziness and physical laziness. So he wrote in his journal in 1738. He wrote this. O oh Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. Nineteen years later, he wrote this. O oh mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth. And redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin. Two years after that, he wrote, Enable me to shake off idleness and sloth. Two years after that, he wrote, I have resolved until I have resolved that I am afraid to resolve again. Three years after that, he wrote, My indolence since my last reception of the sacrament has sunk into gross, grossest sluggishness. My purpose is from this time to avoid idleness and to rise early. Five months after that, he resolves to rise early, not later than six, if I can, he says. A few months after that, he says, I purpose to rise at eight. Because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise. And I often lie until two. Wow, what a hipster. The original bohemian. Three years after that, I am not yet in a state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by eight and by, and by degrees at six. 1775, he wrote, 
When I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments, which have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. And then he resolves to again rise at eight. <laughs> 1781, three years before his death, he says, I will not despair. Help me, help me, oh my God. And then he resolves to rise at eight or sooner to avoid idleness. Poor guy. But why did he not fall into despair? What picked him up? What kept him going? What, what was it? I mean, we are not, we are not um, promised sanctification, perfection, this side of eternity. Paul said, the way Paul words it is, he says, I keep running the race. Like every morning I wake up and I shake off what's behind and I move forward again. And then I get knocked down and I get up again. What is this kind of resolve? What, what is it that moves Samuel Johnson forward and continues? He keeps pushing. I will reform. I will become more like Christ. I will follow his will. I will seek his will. What is it? It's the same thing that Mark Twain understood. Mark Twain said this. Heaven goes by favor. And then he says, if it meant, or if it went by merit, your dog would get in and you would stay out. Amen? Amen. Because our dogs live better lives than we do. More consistent. But heaven goes by favor. You see, our salvation is not based on us doing the will of God. Doing the right thing. Sticking to our resolutions. That's not what brings us into a right, a right relationship, into holiness, into righteousness with God. What brings us into a relationship with God is the one who did completely the will of God. Who stood in the Garden of Gethsemane in view of the cross and said, if it is possible. Remove this cup from me. And then he quickly resolved, your will, and your will be done. Christ did what we could never do, completely followed the will of Christ on our behalf. And we are made right with the Father because of grace, because of favor, because he has chosen us, chosen us in his sovereignty, in his mercy. He has saved us. And so this then radically empowers us and opens us up, opens our eyes to a new reality. You see, my, the reason my kids submit their will, their decision-making power to me is not because they're trying to earn their place as a child. It's because they already are children. It's because I already am their father. It's because I already love them in that way. And when we recognize that we are the children of God through, through the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross and that he is our loving father who wants the best for us, then it makes no sense to operate with our childish minds. And we seek his will in every piece of our life. Can we be a people this year, a church this year, it says we will not waste 2012. We will not waste it. 
We will not waste our lives. We will not miss an opportunity. We will not miss an opportunity to throw a party for those who will never be able to repay us. We will not miss an opportunity to be Jesus in the midst of chaos. We will not miss an opportunity to give generously of our time and our resources and our money for the support of the work of God in Baltimore and around the world. We will not miss an opportunity to forgive. We will not miss an opportunity to ask for forgiveness when it is needed. We will not miss an opportunity to love. We will not miss an opportunity to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of God. We will not miss an opportunity to raise the children of Baltimore in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We will not miss an opportunity to move onto a block that is in need of the love of Christ. We will not miss an opportunity to love our neighbors who Christ has shown us to be the downtrodden and the outcast and the hurting. We will not miss an opportunity to radically demonstrate who Jesus is to the world around us, to invite our unsaved friends and neighbors and people of the city into Christian community, into a relationship with Christ. We will not miss an opportunity to share the gospel with word and deed. Can we be a people that will not waste the year 2012? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for making us your sons and daughters. And it is that revelation, that recognition that drives us to do your will. The fact that we are accepted, that we are loved. So God, as we begin this year out together, worshiping and focusing our attention on you, and as we move into January 2nd and January 3rd and the rest of 2012, I do ask that we will not waste this year. That we will live lives that make this vapor count. That our decisions will be decisions that matter. And that we will seek your will and your mind in everything that we do. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.